Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Swinney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. Now let's turn our attention to the economic data that came out this morning because consumer confidence is not quite as robust as we might have thought. Consumer confidence for October coming in at 100.9, so not a terrible reading, but not as good as economists were anticipating. And the September number was revised lower. Lynn Franco is Director of Economic Indicators at the Conference Board. Lynn, should we start getting concerned or is this still a healthy reading? It's a healthy reading. What we're really seeing is that there's been sort of no significant traction in consumer confidence. We had sort of a uh, sharp rebound, um, you know, sort of post-pandemic, but then we've sort of been uh, moving a little bit uh, sideways here. So, Lynn, I mean, I guess it's not surprising that we're moving sideways, as you suggest, given where we are with the labor market and and even some of the metrics for the virus on a global scale. Um, What are what are consumers, what's their outlook, I guess, for the near term? Well, what we're seeing right now is, um, you know, it's the labor market uh, that drove both the improvement in the present situation index and also the decline in expectations. Uh, so while they're telling us that the job market has improved, you know, sort of from the uh, lows of post-pandemic levels, uh, they really don't expect much of that momentum to continue uh, through the end of the year and into next year. So it's kind of a, a glass half empty, half full where, you know, conditions have not improved, but they necessarily haven't gotten much worse either. Yeah, I mean, the three-month moving average has gone to 96.2 all the way from 127.3 back in March. What's a useful comparison here, Lynn? So obviously March probably isn't the best comparison, even though it looks quite uh, <laughs> quite the, the difference. I think the key here is the trend, right? So we've seen, you know, confidence bounce up and then bounce down and up and down. So we'd really like to see it gain a little bit of traction in an upward direction. And that's going to be heavily dependent on what happens in the labor market. And while, you know, unemployment claims have, have come down, they still remain high. Unemployment is still high and we expect, uh, you know, softening in the labor market. So we could continue around these levels through the end of the year. And, Lynn, you know, one of the areas of the economy that just, I guess, surprises me a little bit how strong it is, is the housing market. How does that play into uh, the consumer, um, given that it can be such a big part of a consumer's net worth? Uh, Well, I guess it's probably having a little bit of a positive impact. We did see a slight uptick in the percent of consumers who said they uh, intended to purchase a home over the next six months. That has to do a lot with uh, low interest rates. Uh, but the key is going to be the labor market, uh, and what happens there is really going to determine the uh, direction that consumer confidence uh, proceeds in. Well, in this data, you dive into all sorts of things like when consumers might be planning to buy a refrigerator or a major appliance when there's a vacation intended. And it's interesting to see that, yeah, there's a reading of 44.6 for people intending to vacation within six months. But almost all of those are intending to vacation in the United States. And there's only a tiny number. That's a 7.2 number looking to vacation in a foreign country. 
Absolutely. Um, you know, we did have a pretty good rebound in terms of the vacation intentions this month, but it's well below uh, 54.9 that we saw, um, you know, back earlier this year. And again, we've got a lot of travel restrictions. Um, you know, there's uh, also uh, pandemic concerns. So we're seeing that people are choosing to vacation locally and the means of travel preferred is an auto. We did see a little bit of an uptick in terms of those willing to sort of, you know, fly to destinations. Uh, but it's really sort of more about local vacationing. Hey, Lynn, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate this getting an update on the consumer. Lynn Franco, Senior Director of Economic Indicators and Surveys at the Conference Board. Vani, would you hop on a plane to go on a vacation? You know, I wouldn't, Paul. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but then too. I'm not even doing outdoor dining yet, so I oh, guess I'm not really the, okay. the typical down the middle. All right, you're taking it conservatively. Well, I, I am coming into HQ, so I guess yes. I have a few other things to. <laughs> yeah, a few you know, other I think, people you know, to worry about. Yeah, you listen to the airlines, Ivani, and You know, they're just not seeing that pickup in demand, and I guess it's probably not surprising, given that we're seeing a, a surge in cases. So, uh, you know, consumer travel leisure continues to be under pressure. Well, Vani, when I started my career, it was at the Chase Manhattan Bank, and we made big corporate loans to uh, big media companies. And the way we charged interest was LIBOR plus some premium rate, uh, depending upon the creditworthiness of the borrower. So LIBOR, the Lin- I think it's the London Interbank Offer Rate, if I can remember back all the way back to my Chase days. Um, that's kind of been the basis of borrowing rates, but that's about to change. Let's get some color on that with Ira Jersey, Chief U.S. Interest Rate Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. Ira, tell us about LIBOR and what may be changing uh, with that base rate. Yeah, so the base rate is uh, basically scheduled to go away at the end of 2021. Um, At least that's what the Financial Conduct Authority, which is the regulator of almost everything financial in in England, um, you know, know, LIBOR was much aligned during the great uh, uh, financial crisis back in 2007 to 2009. And starting in 2013, there was a real push by regulators to find replacement rates for LIBOR globally. And, um, and, a lot of countries have, have different rates, and many of them found different rates that, that they're comfortable using. In the U.S., the, the primary rate that a lot of instruments will, uh, will, will basically transfer to is called the Secured Overnight Financing Rate, or SOFR, which is basically uh, uh, calculated based on repurchase agreements, which are sec- loans secured by treasuries. So, um, so, so that's why you know, there's hundreds of trillions of dollars of these loans outstanding. So this is quite a big deal, and I think it hasn't gotten the attention it really deserves by uh, the broader market. Well, and let's just fill in the reasoning why this all happened. LIBOR was one of the sort of the old guards of finance. It was hilarious. The way it was calculated daily was you just put out a bunch of asks to different banks and you got a whole bunch back and the the top three and the bottom three were mixed together and (laughs) and you got some kind of a rate in the middle. How do you you know this, Bonnie? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, You're into this. Well, then it turned out that people were actually manipulating it a little bit. Ira, give us some background. Yeah, so so the way that, that LIBOR is calculated, it's basically a survey of the banks within the panel that are all uh, London-based banks, and uh, they then take a trim mean. And what happened was during the crisis, um, there there were um, uh, banks basically that that put in rates that weren't real, that that it wasn't really where they could fund, because they're supposed to be um, basically honest about what what they uh, wh- where they can fund on any given day, and that's the rate they're supposed to submit. And they didn't do that. And what uh, uh, 
what what uh, regulators found and what even courts found because there were court cases based on this as, as well as just regulatory fines that that were passed out in the ter- tunes of hundreds of millions of dollars um, they uh, th- basically they, they found that it was open to manipulation so some banks wanted to pull out of these panels to limit their litigation risk um, uh, for being part of the LIBOR panel and as as part of them not pulling out um, some of the regulators said well let's think about getting getting away from from LIBOR at some point in the future, and that date was tagged at the end of 2021. So, so this trans- whole transition process has really started in earnest in 2017, but it's really had to pick up steam because we're we're only you know we're we're only 14 months away from uh, fr- from basically LIBOR going away, which, like I mentioned, and and like like Paul had mentioned before, it's been ubiquitous for the last three generations, mm-hmm. right? So, um, th- this is not an easy task and something that everyone has to pay more attention to. So if I'm holding a bond and it pays me LIBOR plus two and a half percent, come the end of 2021, what's going to happen? So, so that's a good question. Uh, so for most instruments, what will happen is LIBOR will become the secured overnight financing rate plus a spread. And and we estimate, we actually put this out uh, uh, just this morning, uh, we estimate that that spread will be 23 basis points uh, at the end of 2021. So basically, you're going to be paid 23 basis points plus uh, plus whatever SOFA is on an ongoing basis. Um, and so this is a, a, a problem for some banks because... Because with a fixed spread or with using this, you know, treasury-based secured rate instead of a credit-based rate like LIBOR was supposed to be, um, it changes a lot of the calculus in the way that um, in a way that banks fund and in a way that they're going to make loans going forward. So if you have a loan, it'll still be a floating rate, but it'll be more interest rate-based as opposed to the credit spread-based, which um, which does have implications for the way that you hedge or the way that you you think about your loans going forward. Yeah, and just full disclosure, Bloomberg had actually put in an idea uh, for replacing LIBOR at the time as well. There was a sort of a a request out there for public commentary, and I believe that Bloomberg had um, one potential replacement for LIBOR. So, so far then, I mean, is it still going to be, you know, London banks based or, I mean, if I'm, if I'm paying a mortgage in Wisconsin and my credit is not particularly high, am I still going to be, you know, basing my repayments on, on what some bankers in London think? So, so no. So, so far is based on an actual market. So it's based on the, the, the way that, that banks and, and hedge funds and, um, and broker dealers uh, basically trade and, and lend treasury securities to each other within the U.S. So it's, it, it's a very, very liquid market. There's over $900 billion of transactions every day. It's one of the most liquid markets in the world. So um, so, so, so basically, you're, you're at the whim more of dealer balance sheets and bank balance sheets than you are worrying about you know, whether or not you know, in London, there's enough dollars for Barclays Bank to uh, to fund themselves, which is what happened during the uh, during the financial crisis. So so it, it it's a it's a big shift and it, and it's a change in mentality because um, you, you won't be paying more if banks find find it hard to fund. Um, you'll be paying more if uh, um, basically if there's too many treasuries out there for the amount that people can uh, lend. Ira, thank you so much. Ira Jersey of Bloomberg Intelligence there, Chief Interest Rate Strategist, explaining everything to do with SOF or SOFR. Time for Bloomberg Opinion. We're joined by John Authors, Bloomberg Opinion columnist covering <clears throat> all things on the markets. He joins us from our 
Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Out with a very interesting column, just about a topic that you and I were talking about just uh, recently, Vani. It seems like, you know, the numbers are so bad as it relates to the pandemic here. Some of the numbers, you know, as bad as we saw back in March and April. Yet the markets generally are behaving much, much better now than they were back in March and April. To get a sense of why that might be, we welcome John. John, thanks so much for joining us here. Let's talk about your recent column, COVIX-19. What are you thinking about? Uh, I think we're getting to a point where um, the market has to accept that the the risks of COVID to economic activity, and that's obviously what matters primarily to... uh, to markets is how much of an effect it has on stuff being bought and sold have risen uh, have returned and that does need now to be reflected in prices now it's obviously very easy to get uh, very much into you know, big polarized oppositional discussions on this it's obvious that uh, the medical community is getting much better at people keeping people alive when they catch this Uh, and it's also obvious that uh, we're all learning how to keep at least a certain level of activity going on even at points when we're worried about it Um, so there's no question as far as I can see of needing to go down to the kind of depths we saw in March but if you look at the economic activity data you can see even in Germany, which is of the you know the major Western economies, the one that's dealt with the virus best to date, you are seeing uh, an unmistakable tick up in hospitalizations, and you're seeing an unmistakable tick down in economic activity, which, unlike in the states, really had just about got back to normal for a few weeks at the end of the summer, uh, and that's obviously likely to be repeated here in the states. It doesn't matter exactly what governors say or mandate if people are worried about the virus they're that much less likely to go out it's not like we didn't know this was coming though john i mean we've known for a long time that we were likely to not get a vaccine this year Mm. at least for for the plebs among us right (laughs) well there is that i think the issue that that arises there (laughs) is the administration calling for me i think (laughs) no no the, the issue that arises there is um that uh, there was, and this wasn't ridiculous, there's a widespread belief within the markets that the the, uh, the disease had reached what you could call a choke point or even herd immunity, i.e. that once a certain number of the people who are the most connected, who of, of necessity on their day-to-day lives are the people who come into contact with the most other people, once they've got it, the theory, and it's not that bad a theory, was that it would be much harder for the disease to spread again. And so in places like where we are here in New York uh, or other cities where there had been particularly severe outbreaks, the reasonable belief was that it just wasn't going to come back with anything like that amount of force. Now, you could still argue that in most places around the world, cases are picking up worst in areas where they've been least problematic before, such as the upper Midwest here in the States. But that's beginning to look ever more tenuous. There there is a steady drip of news about cases here in New York. There's um, a number of the European places that are having problems had already had 
quite severe outbreaks before. Uh, so I think there was a reasonable degree of hope, justified or not, that um, we really weren't going to get a significant recurrence in the, the places we'd had it already. And we're now seeing the markets beginning to retreat from that hope. And John, you know, I think just looking at Europe, they seem to be a little bit ahead of us yet mm. again here, and we're starting to see some shutdowns uh, in France and, and Spain and other areas. Um, and the UK, you know, and, yes. And, and the UK, yeah. and it's mm. only October. You know, I think it's, would it be reasonable for people to say, this could get materially worse as we really get into December, January, February? Yes, it would be reasonable to, to say that. Uh, this is a time when people are more likely to stay in anyway. We have the psychological issue of Christmas coming up. Right. Uh, in, in Britain, the rule at the present is, uh, is no more than six people gathering together in more, you know, in, uh, in, indoors, even if they're members of the family in the areas that are most affected, which basically for most extended families means no Christmas dinner, uh, which is a it's very right. big We're deal. We're probably and saving some families, by the way. <laughs> well, there is, the, yeah. there is that. It might, it might actually be bad for the marriage guidance industry but, but, and bad for divorce lawyers, but yeah, there, there might be slightly less stress there. But, but it, those, are, those are significant issues. And also, uh, I nearly missed this interview because I was having my flu shot. We are now into <laughs> flu season. Uh, and the symptoms of the two are quite similar to each other, which gives reasons for concern. If you've just had COVID and then you get flu, we don't know what that's going to be like, etc. Yeah, but there are, I think there are good reasons to believe that um, this is not going to be as deadly per se as it was before, but it could easily be very disruptive. If Biden wins the presidency, do the markets price out a little bit of the COVID premium or the COVID discount in the sense that it's unlikely that Biden wouldn't implement some federal sort of orders if it came to that, whereas at the moment we know we're not getting those kinds of orders? I, I doubt that, partly because he's not getting, it, he's not getting in until January the 20th, 20th at the earliest. Mm. Um, by which point, even if things are terrible, you would if, if things are at the very worst, then the uh, precedent of uh, Spanish flu in 1918 suggests that by then it would more or less have blown itself out anyway. Uh, so I doubt, uh, I doubt it would have that big of. A, there are many other reasons why a, a Biden victory would affect the markets. I don't see it having that big of an effect. Um, and at this point, masks are so politicized, uh, you can have a federal mask mandate. Uh, and I'm not sure how big an effect on people's behavior that would have. Good point, yeah. So I, it just feels like, you know, you could make an argument for, uh, you know, some real risk in, in, in the near term, John. Yes. Yep. I, I mean, there are plenty of other reasons yep. for risk in the very near term as well, but... Uh, People were hoping COVID wasn't one of them and they, they're yep. giving up on that type. Hey, John, thanks so much for joining us and congratulations on your flu shot. Always good to get <laughs> that out of the way. John Authors, Bloomberg Markets, senior editor, giving us uh, his thoughts on some potential for near-term volatility. I'm looking at the VIX here, uh, which is something that Tom Keen loves to call out every morning. The VIX is above 33. That's a relatively high level, uh, indicating some risk in the market. 
Well, our next guest has um, degrees in Russian, Eastern European and Central Asian studies from Harvard University. So the natural place for her to end up is leading up Third Bridge's coverage in therapeutics, if you don't mind. Thanks to Jaylan Mamadamba, who does lead up the healthcare analysis at Third Bridge for joining us. Jaylan, you know, I was being a little facetious earlier, but it is wonderful to have all of that in the background because we're dealing with a global pandemic right here and we're dealing with global companies trying to come up with therapeutics, with vaccines and with cures. And I'm curious as to, you know, where you think the first of the the, the, the better vaccines, let's say, will come out of. Perfect. Thank you so much, Fanny. And just in starting off uh, with earnings uh, from Lilly, Merck, and Pfizer this morning, I think it's really key that you were looking at the second half in Q3 is to see who's done a better job in terms of weathering the storm. And this comes down to the vaccine conversation. Um, The media has really portrayed it as to who's going to come to market first. And our experts do really think Pfizer, BioNTech, and with that, Moderna will be making up the first generation of vaccines. Now, having said that, we do think that the most important mechanism to look after is going to be the durability, so the longevity of the efficacy in a mass uh, population, as well as the safety pertaining to the durability mechanism. And what I mean by that is that there's a window of time where the patient is inclined uh, to get more infected due to declining antibodies. Now, as it would pertain to the RNA vaccine, so both Pfizer and Moderna, they have historically shown poor durability in T-cell responses, uh, but there are... Um, not too many safety concerns. And looking at the FDA EUA guidelines, uh, not being a strict but 50% uh, efficiency in the median two-month follow-up, we essentially see these first coming to market, capturing maybe about 50% share and then leveling off until we see more durable options come out out of the Novavaxes, the J&Js, and, and, and the Mercs, and uh, especially also both on the preventative vaccines and on the prophylactic side. Uh, like with the oral antiviral agents that both Pfizer and Merck are working on. So, Jalen, is it the expectation within the healthcare community that um, there will be one kind of go-to vaccine, or will there be kind of a cocktail or uh, approach where maybe some people will get one or more of this vaccine and others will get one or more of that vaccine? What's the expectation currently? Yeah, so definitely, although I don't like to talk about this in terms of winners, there will be three, four candidates out there, right? And just from the standpoint of of getting the vaccine administered at mass scale, we are going to need uh, a few of those players. Now, in terms of considerations on administration, the elderly are the at-risk population. And we saw a recent JAMA article noting that, you know, with the newer technology platforms like the RNAs, there are safety reservations as to the adoption uh, in, in those, you know, older populations. Whereas when you look at Merck, although much later entrants in the, in the game, um, they're using their established VSC vector platform that has shown amazing efficacy with the Ebola vaccine, right? It's also going to be potentially in single dose, an oral formulation, which is super convenient. And again, no reservations when it comes to administration for the elderly. You're absolutely right. There are different um, age categories that are probably going to adapt to this differently. Having said that, um, a, Novavax also has a combined, uh, potentially combining the COVID-19 vaccine with their flu vaccine. So from an administration standpoint, that's going to be much more convenient. And those are the players that we're going to be seeing, you know, three, four of those uh, gaining adoption at mass scales, but definitely not, not one player. Um, that would not be sufficient in terms of um, in terms of uh, 
mass scale adoption, which is really the case with really any other therapeutic indication. Jaylan, at some point we should have several vaccines. I mean, hopefully, right? That would be the idea. Do they all stay in existence then or, or do some sort of end up with better marks than others? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, with the RNAs, for example, we do see these phasing out and then the RNA platforms being used uh, in different infectious disease or even oncology indications, right? Because when Pfizer is partnering with BioNTech, um, that's really they're investing in the, in the, in the platform with COVID-19 as a starting point. But likely it is going to be phased out when these more durable mechanisms uh, come to the fore. Uh, out of, you know, J&J and Novavax and and Merck. And the two areas to really track are both the antibody responses um, as well as the T-cell responses as we are still trying to understand better the pathogenesis of of, of COVID-19. Now, the prophylactic options are also going to be interesting to track. Um, The Merck oral antiviral uh, combination with Ridgeback Bio, um, we're looking out for the safety data out of that. But before we get a vaccine at mass scale, uh, these types of prophylactic options, um, especially in oral formulation, will uh, will really uh, we're expecting to see wide, widespread adoption, especially in skilled nursing facilities. Hey, Jalen, just about uh, 30 seconds left. Um, how confident is the industry that they can actually produce and distribute this at scale? Yeah, so we were looking at the first 100 million doses by year, and our experts don't think that that is viable. I mean, we're seeing Pfizer-BioNTech keep pushing the timeline out further and further. Um, We're probably going to see the first 100 million doses sometime, you know, mid-next year. And what I mean by that is not just ready to go, but ready to go and administer to the population. Um, uh, In terms of viability, look, the RNAs are easiest to manufacture. Right, the but then you know, that yeah. becomes a little bit more complicated with the two dosing regimen. So anything that's single dose will probably catch up to the two dosing yeah. regimen vaccines. Hey, Jalen, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate your insight, getting us updated here on some of the therapeutics and vaccines and the timelines. Uh, Jalen Mamadova, global sector lead for healthcare at Third Bridge, joining us to lend her insights into what is the topic of the moment, and that is a vaccine. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.